0: Welcome to the KBB Review Podcast. We're back, 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 and this is episode one of season four. I hope you all had a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I, for one, am still digesting cheese and quality street in a way that is not unlike the way a snake would digest a whole cow. If you heard the last episode of Season 3, you'll know that this is actually a double milestone. Not only is it the beginning of Season 4, it's also our 100th episode overall. No, please sit down, there's no need for applause or, or tears. It's emotional for all of us, I know, but together we can get through this. We're kicking off with an absolutely fascinating discussion about the most fundamental element of running an independent retail business, getting the money off the customer, and what pricing structure you use to do that. I'll be talking it through with a couple of top retailers who really know their stuff, so don't miss that. But first... There 's only a few weeks to go to the KBB Review retail and designer awards twenty twenty two seriously, yes it's much closer than you think it's on March the seventh at the Hilton Birmingham Metropole, which is, as I'm sure you all know, the Monday night of the KBB show It's a huge celebration of everything that's great about the industry in a room packed with retailers, designers, leaders, and influencers. but that's not all. We have the return of the cuckoo Club after party, and if you were in Liverpool in September, you'll know that 's not to be missed. And in a first for us, one person in the room will walk away with £5,000 courtesy of our grand prize partner, Virtual Worlds. Seriously, it really could be you. I'm afraid you'll have to sit through a speech by me too, of course, but, you know, swings and roundabouts. But you do need to get a move on if you want to secure your tickets, as they're selling out fast as we get nearer to the date. You can book individual tickets or entire tables of 10 And it all includes the full three-course dinner, the awards ceremony with our top celebrity host and entertainment, and, of course, entrance to the Cuckoo Club. Book your tickets now at kbbreview.com forward slash awards. And, quick inside tip, if you want to pay by invoice rather than credit card, then move quickly as we'll be turning off that option very soon. I will see you there. (music) Right, let's talk now about how you as retailers decide what pricing structure you use with your customers. What deposit do you take? When do you take it? When and where do you ask your clients to settle the balance? And how do you arrive at the right permutation of all that for you? So let's talk all this through uh, with a couple of very esteemed guests. We've got Toby Griffin, very experienced retailer, now consultant. Hello, Toby. Hi, Andy. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you very much. And we have Dan Strong from Jones, Britain in the very picturesque East Sussex. Hello, Dan. Good morning. Happy New Year to you, Andy. Well, same to you, sir. Now, big subject this, So let's start with you, Toby, because you've actually written a piece on this for us in the uh, February issue of KBB Review. For me, the really interesting thing about it is that for such a fundamental part of everyone's business, everyone seems to have a different permutation of how they do it.
1: Yeah, I think you started this conversation actually with a LinkedIn post about, yeah. uh, about payment terms and, and it got a hell of a lot of response, didn't it? And yeah, I've worked for six different retailers in the industry now um, in various roles and uh, thinking about it, they all do it in a different way. And it's amazing. You could have one business and a hell of a lot of businesses require 100% on order and then plenty ask for a deposit and then a balance. Also, when the balance is is paid for as well varies. It could be at the end of the job. It could be on on delivery. It can be split between fits. And then there obviously there's the big trade part of the industry, like Howden's and places like that, where it's all on account. And so 30 days after delivery payment is made. So we're going from one total extreme of 100 percent up front to 100 percent 30 days after delivery. So and everywhere in the middle, it's fascinating, like you said, how much variety there is.
0: Yeah, so look, Dan, you're, you're our case study here. So run us through your terms and how you manage it. We take a 25% deposit from our
2: clients. That's normally after several appointments. So we've built a rapport with a client. We've got to know them. They've got to know us. That we take a, a 25% deposit on order. We then take 65% seven days prior to delivery. And then we have a 10% balance outstanding on completion and satisfaction from the client that the job is is complete to their satisfaction.
0: Right, so it's a it's a deposit pre-delivery and then a post are you happy with it kind of structure.
2: Correct, yes. And the type of kitchens that we do, I mean, we're, we're mid to high end. So, uh, you know, we could be talking about a, a 60,000, 70,000 pound kitchen. So that 25% deposit, is an awful lot of money to part with at an early stage, when the, especially in the current situation where appliances may be delayed for weeks or even months, the client is is always a little bit dubious. But obviously, we take we take that twenty five percent deposit, but we we have that protected. We're members of the KBSA, so we have that protected um, with an insurance policy. So if anything was to happen to us the client is guaranteed to get their money back if something goes wrong or the, the the job can't progress.
0: And how did you arrive at that structure? Was it a trial and error thing? Has it always been that way? How did you arrive at, th- at those particular numbers? To be honest with you,
2: it's a history thing. I
0: mean, I've been in the industry for 25 years and
2: those are pretty much, apart from the final balance, slight difference, um, those are pretty much the terms that I've worked to for 25 years and they work. I could probably count on one hand the number of times I've had a customer balk at those, at, at those figures. So it, it's just tried and tested and it works. But I think the big thing is a, you've got to have trust because obviously if we're taking 90 or 95% upfront before anything is delivered, that client has to trust us a hundred percent. Otherwise they're not going to want to go down that route. But it's a two-way thing. We trust them, they trust us.
1: Dan, have you ever felt the need to vary those terms because you think you might lose a sale? I'm not saying completely throw them out the window, but adjust them in certain circumstances.
2: Yes, and we have done. I I try to stick as as much as I can to the standard of what we do currently. But being an independent business, I can manipulate those terms if, if, if I want. So What we tend to do more often than not on a much larger kitchen, I will tend to split the middle payment. So that's 65%. I would split 50-50 and say 32.5% seven days prior to delivery and then 32.5% on template of work surfaces. But there, there is another reason for this. Obviously, certain banks can only only allows it i think it's 10,000 or some banks are 20,000 pound transfers at a time now if you if you're selling a 100,000 pound kitchen uh, a payment of 65,000 pounds going into our bank account could take six or seven days worth of transfers to to come through to us so that kind of lightens the load to the cl- client somewhat but also also gives them peace of mind that they've paid a certain amount up front seen a certain amount of progress and then are willing to part with the the, the next tranche of uh, of money
0: i mean as you say that is a very to so the premium end of the market where you are talking with those kind of sums but i mean how much should a deposit be toby what do you think is it a token amount to secure the order right is it about you know having money up front so you can spend it on on supplies what do you think? Because we saw some examples, didn't we, of, of people who take like a £500 deposit just to kind of secure the order and other people who want the whole lot up front.
1: Yeah, I think Magnet take a £500 deposit, but at the sort of entry level of the market, it's so finance heavy now. So companies like REN and Magnet and places like that is that the, the company itself gets paid from the finance business pretty much straight away. So essentially it's 100% up front. So that slightly warps it. Also, I was thinking that internet sales. So we've got the likes of, you know, Victorian Plumbing, DIY kitchens that are both on the charge. They essentially are payments upfront, a uh, hundred percent. So that that's a, you know, it's a very different model. But that's the way that it's looking at, at volume entry level of the industry. But is deposit about cash flow though? Do you think? Well, you, you <laughs> you're not meant to tell the client that it's a contribution to cash flow. The argument, obviously, is when when and you know, as Dan has said before, sometimes people do question it, um, is having very quickly the reasoning behind wanting that. So products needing to be ordered and then booking fitters, I think, is probably the, the big one, I've, um, particularly when we've got a bit of, you know, a shortage of, of installation teams now that actually being able to say, look, I've got, I'm booked months in advance, that's your slot. So you are securing that slot. So if you can explain to people what that deposit is for, then they're much happier with it. But I
0: don't think to say, well, because we need the money is going to help sales very well. No, well, I guess. And Dan raised an interesting point there about people's confidence in small, independent businesses. That if they pay a, you know, even if it's a thousand pounds, that probably represents a quite an expensive payment relatively. So is security, is reassurance, is securing that deposit important, do you think? Well, getting the, the deposit is,
1: it doesn't actually need to be very much. 25%, I think a lot of independence, that is a, the sort of standard deposit. Some do a lot more. It's a trust, as Dan mentioned it before. If the client trusts the business and trusts you, you can get almost all of it up front. Yeah, great. That's the skill of the salesperson, funnily enough, actually, and the, and the business as a whole. So if, if the trust is there, then it's actually relatively easy. It takes a bit of explanation.
2: I think that there's something, sorry to butt in, but I think there's something to add to this, and certainly this works from, from my business's perspective, is we produce a lot of bespoke items, and therefore these items are made to order specifically for that client. And therefore, by taking 25% deposit... You're telling the customer, we're going to go off and manufacture something specifically for you, and therefore it can't be sold
1: on to somebody else if you default. Yeah, but that's an argument for actually taking more. Yeah. Arguably, because I've, I've worked for businesses where we take a 45% deposit and then 45% on delivery or just before delivery and the argument being that if you default on this we're going to have a whole load of product that's no you almost no use i'll I'll struggle to sell it on so it's actually an argument for taking a higher deposit
0: yeah no absolutely the other part of it seems to be or the other variable seems to be whether or not you take all the money before the work begins or before products are delivered on site or whether you leave this balance to be settled after the work is completed i
1: think you have to I'd,
0: I'd, at, the,
1: at the middle to higher end of the market, people don't want to be left high and dry. And it, it doesn't need to be much. That 10% seems to be pretty consistent across the board. And customers te- seem to be happy with that. Sometimes I actually explain, explain to them that actually that's only 10% of the whole value of the order. But in terms of the profit that we're looking to make, it's a massive amount of it. So I'll say, look, we really, really need that money. So don't, you know, you must believe that we're, that we're going to you know, make sure that you're absolutely happy. Um, something that dan said a little bit earlier that is, is an interesting little nuance as well is that i've found that particularly where there's large balances outstanding um having in the t's and c's or at least in discussions to say that until the customer's happy is a little bit dangerous um because a person could never be happy um and as i've written articles before about this is that um is that i think an opening article of, of an article i wrote was um was i I've never seen a kitchen or bathroom in either in a showroom or a, or a client's house that I couldn't if I really tried find a problem with, um, and that's the issue is that if you if you're thinking that I'm going to wait until the customer's happy if they don't want to pay that balance they will never be happy.
2: No, it doesn't, and it doesn't. It, actually, our T's and C's don't say if you are happy. They're they're they're
1: very much more legal than that. But... Yeah, so I think something like satisfactory completion. But <laughs> yes. The troublesome bit, though, is that sometimes a slightly overeager sales designer can sometimes, in, in larger organisations where you have you're not necessarily party to every conversation, they can slightly overegg this um, in order to secure the sale, and then leave the project manager, uh, installation manager, a massive headache when at the end of the conversation, when when there's still a no and a third snagging list, and the client says, "Well, I was told." That, uh, that it was only when I was happy would the balance be paid. And I've had that a few times.
2: But that always refers then back to T's and C's. I mean, our T's and C's are, 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 quite, uh, are quite detailed. And actually, it does say in our T's and C's that until final balance has been, uh, has been paid, the, the ownership of the product still remains ours.
0: Right. I mean, it, a lot of this, as you say, Dan, is about trust and confidence, isn't it? Which is quite weird because we're talking about terms and conditions and very sort of legal documents and exchange of money. But a lot of it is about trust and confidence, isn't it? Because I, I suspect most people have secured all the money before they go into the project. Like They know where all the money's coming from. How do you strike that balance between explaining and talking them through the financial side of it and actually applying T's and C's to them?
2: We give them a copy of T's and C's. We have a, a, a little folder where the, the, the folder holds the quotation. It has the T's and C's. We say read those in your your own time. I, I would hazard a guess that not all clients sit and scrutinise our T's and C's. I had an instance uh, last year. It might have even been the year before uh, where where a client did go through them in 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 minutiae detail and. Uh, and actually underlined things and sent sent back and said, "Well, I don't agree with this, and I don't agree with that, but uh, generally it goes back to the trust thing the t's and C's are just there as a as as a backup, and to be honest, how many times have I enforced oh this is, it says this on our ts and cs. I don't think it ever happens because you've built that rapport with the client over over such a long period of time." And you don't want to upset the apple cart half, either halfway through the project or two thirds of the way through or right at the end. I would like to keep my clients happy and have them recommending us. Um, so there's always a little bit of, you know, you can give them a little bit of leeway. And if somebody hasn't paid a, a bill when it is due, they'll get a gentle reminder. We're reasonably easygoing. Um, and it's, yeah, it's about personal personal relationships with these customers.
0: And how does you know product shortages and things like that affect that conversation? When when you know you've bought and paid for things up front effectively but they, they just aren't arriving.
2: I think the clients have been very understanding. I've had no clients it, through the whole pandemic that have been screaming and shouting. I think everybody understands we're in a we're in a different world and uh they they understand the situation, but it is it is drummed into them at a fairly early stage that there is a shortage you know there there, there was an article in the, the sunday times at the weekend um th- discussing it people are reading reading the papers people know they're not they're not silly they know that there is a shortage uh, we we've got a we've got a jobber on the go at the moment the client's waiting for a wine cooler it was ordered back in september Um, It's not being delivered till February. We made a bit of a joke yesterday that it was the one remaining appliance needed and uh, that they'd have to store their their white wine outside in the cold weather for the moment. It became a bit of a joke. So all my clients have been very, very reasonable.
0: For you, Toby, the ultimate question here is, I suppose, is, is how does the variations in this pricing structure influence the client when or if they're shopping around? If they have to choose between retailer A and retailer B, does this make a difference? Yeah.
1: And that's the the problem is that fundamentally, preferably, you'd have 100% on order because it's great for the cash flow. And also, it's the power balance as well. Because up until the point at which you've got any money off a customer, they have all the power. Then at the point at which you have some money or all of the money, the power then shifts And the customer knows that. They know that once that transaction has happened, even if it's not the full amount, then we're on a more equal footing. But ultimately, as a salesperson, you would want to take no deposit. That would be the easiest thing in the world. We'd take kitchen orders, particularly if you're on commission, with no deposit. So it does have an effect on sales. But this is where I say the skill of the, the salesperson is, is to be able to to manage that relationship and to build have built the trust. Throughout all of the consultations that have got to that point, so that you can ask for a reasonable size deposit and look them in the eye, steely eyed, and say because that's a reasonable thing to ask. But yeah, so it's power, trust, as you as you keep saying, Dan. But but yeah, it does. It will have a slight effect on on sales. The more that you ask for upfront, we,
2: we've we've never ever taken any less than twenty five percent, and I've do, I don't think I've ever had a client walk away from a job because they want to pay only 10% or 500 pounds or whatever. It's but if you were happened. if
1: you were if you were owner like if you were MD of Benchmarks or Howdens you'd be you'd be laughed out of the boardroom if you suggested that and so that's the thing it depends where you are in the industry because it's absolutely normal in the trade part of the industry which is massive that it's 30 days after delivery. So it depends on where you are but yes to Joe public the person in the street a modest a reasonable deposit and an explanation does tend to go down fine and if they don't like it uh, half the time once or twice when i've when i've lost an order on this i'm thinking Do you know what i'm probably quite glad because if you've been like this unreasonable on this issue then you're probably going to be
0: unreasonable when it comes to snagging lists as well
2: oh absolutely absolutely
0: the bit we haven't touched on here as well in terms of upfront payment, is the idea of including some kind of design fee within that deposit structure. So that, yes, there's a design fee there, but that will be then included in your final balance if you take the order with us. How much is it important to itemise those kind of things, the actual man hours?
2: We sometimes have a design fee and sometimes don't. And we judge that on the, the, the client. Every now and then, we feel that a client might be might possibly be wasting our time or they may want to take our plans elsewhere and get it cheaper. So um, we would introduce a design fee, but often we tend to we don't give our plans out to anybody. Um, so if a client says, "I really want to go ahead," or "I think we're we're going in the right direction," we will we will then say, "Well, if we take a thousand pounds holding deposit, you can then have the plans." And that is that that forms a design fee as such, um, and that money would come off the total of the kitchen, or it would we would then take the remainder of a twenty five percent deposit um, once everything is fully
1: confirmed. Dan, when you do that, do you do you make sure that in writing you say that that um, holding deposit is non refundable? Um.
2: No, because I've legally,
1: never- legally, if you don't state that's non-refundable, the customer can insist that they get a deposit back. Ah, right, okay. Well, no, and
2: and we, but I've never ever had to give uh, that that holding deposit back, and we're we, we're doing a lot more holding deposits now because again, lead times. You know, we're booking jobs into May and June. Um, I don't really want to take twenty five percent of the client's money at this stage and have it sitting in my bank account, making me look more cash rich when I'm not actually ordering products or certain products or not certainly not paying for them.
1: That's an interesting point, Dan, is that I've, you know, when I've been in businesses where we take a lot of money up front, you look at the bank balance and think, hey, we're amazing business people. Yeah. <laughs> and then sometimes forget there's a whole load of stuff still yeah. to pay for. Yeah, I don't like that. I'm more
2: I, I would much rather the the, the 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 money stay in the client's account and at the point where we are ordering a significant amount of product, it would be at that time we take the remainder of the 25% deposit. But the 1,000 pounds shows commitment. The 1,000 pounds shows that the client is prepared to part with a a good amount of money and expect not to get it back. And I think the assumption is that if they're paying 1,000 pounds, they're not going to get it back. Um, and, And therefore, they're showing commitment and it, it leads to us showing more willing to, to, to take the job to the next level.
1: Dan, how often, if you have taken that holding deposit, how often do they not go ahead? Is it almost never? Uh, I would
2: say, yeah, almost never. I, could, again, can count on one hand the number of
1: times the client hasn't gone ahead. That's the psychology of the deposit, isn't it? Is that it yeah. doesn't have to be a huge amount of money, funnily enough. But once you've got some money, then the person doesn't want to feel they've lost that to, to write off even a thousand pounds hurts, even if you're rich. <laughs> and so, uh, so once you've got an amount of money that's more than you know a couple hundred pounds, then then you've pretty much guaranteed the order.
0: Uh, exactly, hundred percent. And does it psychologically? Tell the consumer that you are doing work already, even though there's no products involved, or that you know there's nothing in a workshop or on the back of a lorry. I, I would say so, yes. And that and that's a big part of the trust and confidence issue, isn't it? They are investing in your skills. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I mean, at that at that point in time, we we've, we've probably produced forty hours worth of work to get to that stage already. The client is uh, has discounted any other companies that they're, they're that they've been talking to, and therefore you yeah, know, they are going ahead. And even at that stage, we are signing contracts um, and therefore the terms and conditions apply. So, yeah, it is, it's its is—it's—it's a holding deposit and releasing of plans, but it, you you are entering into a contract at that stage.
0: Well, I mean, we talked about it a little bit, Toby, but do, how flexible do you think people should be when it comes to with these structures to secure the job? I think you need to have your official terms and conditions
1: um, and stick to them. Times when I have varied from the official terms and conditions, it's been on the absolute agreement with the client. They don't don't go and tell anybody Um, because you don't want to be seen as a soft touch. And that if, if a pressure is applied, it's a little bit like discounting. Funnily enough, it's the same thing is that if ever I've offered a discount to a client, it's on the basis they don't tell anybody. Um, now, they may or may not do, but I don't want it advertised, A, that I'm a soft touch in terms of discount and B, that I'm a soft touch with reference to payment terms. So I think you should decide on your payment terms and stick with them 90% of the time. But if it's a big order um, with a good client and you need the money, then I've, I've varied them um, because, you know, you just got to do what you got to do sometimes. Yeah, I mean, we, we can get involved in. I mean, we've done projects
2: north of a hundred thousand pounds where we've had a builder involved, but they've actually wanted to run the job entirely through Jones Britain. So, obviously, we would then go into stage payments. Um, but it's we try our best, it's always 25 percent deposit on order. Um, and, and obviously, that that £1,000 holding deposit if we need to throw that into the equation. But we can do stage payments. I mean, this is the beauty of being independent. I can do whatever I want, but I totally agree. We should stick to payment terms. But on a job where you've got, a 100 let's say, £150,000 project and it's going to last 15 weeks, I think taking you know everything bar £15,000 at the end is, is a bitter pill to swallow for even that richest client who, who's prepared to spend one hundred and fifty pounds on a, on a kitchen, so we we would split that middle payment into into stage payments because it, they're seeing progress on the work and the builders doing X, and uh, and I think that's that's moving slightly into into building realms and and generally stage payments are are standard in 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 large build projects.
0: Well, look, time has beaten us. I think, gents. I mean, we haven't even. Just- Touched upon whether installation versus supply only and that kind of thing, either. But look, it's such an interesting subject, and we, yeah, we've only really made a small deposit on the huge balance of possible discussion. Uh, hey,
1: well, that's
0: <laughs> <very good laughs> thanks. <I> came <laughs> up. With it. Um, but look, thank you for your time as always, and we will catch up again soon. Great, thanks, Andy. Thank you very much. Nice to speak to you. That was Toby Griffin and Dan Strong, and it's such an interesting subject, isn't it? I think it redefines who you are as a retailer, who your target market is, what products you sell at what level of the market. It's such good stuff, so thank you to both of them, and I'll be back next week. But in the meantime, don't forget to book your tickets for the KBB Review Retail and Design Awards 2022 in Birmingham on March the 7th. That's the Monday night of the KBB Show. All the details are at kbbreview.com forward slash awards. I'll see you next time. Oh,